historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Hi, I'm Itai Tenenbaum, and as in every episode, I want to introduce myself for 10 seconds. I was born in Israel in Tel Aviv, moved to the United States around the age of 10, almost 11, lived there for about eight years, came back to Israel at 18, served in the military, mostly in the armored corps. I was a tank commander. Um, I was in the Lebanon war, the first Lebanon war. I had been in Gaza many, many years as a reserve duty. That's a month a year. In my professional career, I started as a tour guide. I set up my own tour business. And now and before, I also set up this podcast called Inside Israel. It's October 23, 2023. Just two days ago, on October 21st, the Israeli Defense Forces was engaged on four different fronts. In the Gaza, obviously, but also in Lebanon, with shoulder missiles coming in from the Lebanese border, pilotless airplanes trying to come in and bomb into Israel. In the West Bank, two car bombs driven by two suicide bombers wanted to attempt and kill many Israelis. That was foiled, they were killed, as well as those that sent them that were killed in a tunnel under a mosque. Finally, in Syria, Israel had blown up several tarmacs in Aleppo and also in Damascus so that equipment doesn't come in to, that is fighting equipment, doesn't come into the Hezbollah and to pro-Iranian proxy groups in Syria itself. Once again, a war in four fronts, and I'll be talking about that a little bit later in this episode. But I want to start once again with the stories of the victims. Um, I must tell you that as a guide and guiding many people around Israel, um, when I went to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial Museum, I attempted to never just use the number 6 million Jews that were murdered. And why is that? Because every single person has a story. Every single person had a food they liked and music they liked and wore a different kind of clothing and had a profession. We need to give them their personal stories and tell their personal stories. And that's why I want to start a little bit with the victims and heroes of that tragic day, Saturday, October 7th, 2023. There's a small community on the Gaza border, obviously within Israel, called Khulit. In the small community, there are 53 families. Many of them are no longer with us. I want to tell you about the Raviva family for a moment. A man named Yuval Ravivo says this, I understood from WhatsApp messages circulating between the residents that the butchers, those that, that's the Hamas butchers, of course, were looking to first kill all the men. Wanting to save my wife and kids, I went out of the safe room. Maybe they'll see me, kill me, and think no one else is in the house, and that will just go on. As Yuval tells a story, he starts to weep. A family member of his, Ilan Ravivo, tells us this. In another house was a 92-year-old Holocaust survivor. His name was Moshe Riddler. And his aide was there too, a Romanian foreign worker named Petro Bosco. They just slaughtered the two of them as they were sitting right on the porch. Ilan continues, I so desperately wanted to protect my family. I didn't have a weapon, so I grabbed two of the best knives from the kitchen and I stood in front of the safe room. I was calm and told my kids, don't worry, I'll protect you. We were lucky. The Hamas butchers did not notice us and moved on. There's a story that was especially touching of a couple named Ne'ama and Gideon Kobani. The Kobani couple, armed with a handgun, 
first hid their son Yotam and a girl that was over their house named Neama in a safe room. They put them under blanket, blankets and they told them to remain silent. No matter what happens, keep quiet. The husband and wife, Neama and Gidon, they took their handguns, they loaded the bullet into the chamber, and they just waited for the terrorists to come in. Now, Makubani says this. We received the text that Adi is in a safe room all alone. She was a few houses down from us. Adi was a seven-year-old girl who did not know what happened to, their, to her parents who were in the house with her. Her parents were Liz and Meir El-Kharar. Adi's parents were just not responding. Now, Adi, once again, seven years old, sent a voice message over WhatsApp that she's hiding in the closet. And that's when Ama looked at her husband, Gidon, and she says this, I turned to Gidon and said, take a deep breath. You served in the police force in the past. Get into your warrior mood. You must go save Adi. Ama then continues, and she says, Gidon's expression changed immediately and dramatically. You could see it in his eyes. Gidon says, I jumped out and ran to Adi's house. I entered the house and saw Liz, her mother, Adi's mother, dead on the floor. I checked her pulse. There was none. I yanked the closet door open and grabbed Adi in my arms. We went past her mother and I said, Adi, don't look. I put her in my arms so that she couldn't see. I ran towards my house all the while bullets were zooming past us, above our heads and all around us. Gideon was then asked, so you're holding a seven-year-old a girl named Adi. Her mother is lying dead on the floor. What did you say to Adi? Gideon looks at the camera when he was interviewed and said, I didn't talk. She did. He was then asked, well, what did she say? And he said, all she said was, thank you. Just thank you. In that same small community named Cholit, a young teenage boy named Rotem Matthias told his story. So he said this, we heard loud knocking on the door. My father was holding the door as hard as he can, as tight as he could. My mother jumped on top of me. Then I heard my father yell, my arm is gone. He was holding the door with all his strength and they blew up the door with explosives blowing off my father's arm. I heard a few more shots and I felt that my mother was still, totally still. They shot her. I feel something warm on my stomach. It was her blood, my mother's blood. The bullets went through my mother's body and punctured my stomach as well. Then there was quiet, silence. I figured the butchers had left. But then they came back. And when they came back, I put a little blood on me. I covered myself with a bloody blanket and pretended to be dead. I heard the rambling in the kitchen. They must have been looking for something to eat. And then they left again. Rotem continued and said that when the shooting started, his parents looked at him and said in Hebrew, which means, you'll be fine. They were right. My mother saved me. In the past couple of days, those that were killed in Khulit were brought to burial side by side. The members of the kibbutz, the members of kibbutz Khulit that attended the funeral had said out loud, this is our home, we shall return to it and resurrect it. Another story I want to share with you is about a five-year-old Bedouin Muslim child that was in agricultural fields, again, right outside of the Gaza Strip within Israel, with his family, his father, his brothers, and his uncle. 
the kid's name is Atala. And as I said, Atala was with his father and his brothers. They were working in the greenhouses of a moshav called Miftachim. Now, they're an Arab Bedouin family. Again, Muslims. They're Israeli citizens, and they live in the city of Rahat, which is actually a large Bedouin city. As they work in the agricultural fields, all of a sudden the Hamas butchers showed up with the intention of murdering the residents of the Moshav itself. The butchers first encounter this family, and the father, Osama, he basically shouted at them that they were Arabs. But then they answered him, you are more Jewish than a Jew, and shot him with a burst of fire that killed him immediately. Atala and his four brothers managed to evacuate with the help of their uncle to a shelter that was right there close by. As they were running, little kids were their uncle. The Hamas butchers continued shooting at them, hitting Atala, the five-year-old, in his back. They hid, the Hamas went on their way to continue butchering others. Now, within a couple hours, fighters from the Negev Border Intelligence Unit of the Israeli police force was sent to the scene. The commander of this unit, named Ronen Kalfon, says that they were conducting fire with the terrorists, with the Hamas butchers, killing all of them or whoever they could find. And then he says that after we started moving through the area so as not to run into the ambushes that were laid on the road by the Hamas butchers, he continues, we fought house to house. And at one point, we even saw that the terrorist had stolen clothing from foreign workers, foreign workers from Thailand, put on their clothing and pretended not to, uh, to pretend to be workers. We located them and killed them as well. We continued scanning house to house, and all of a sudden, a man walks out, and he's got his hands up in the air, and he says, don't shoot, please don't shoot, I'm an Israeli Arab, I'm from Rahat. The man continued and told them that his brother was shot dead, and that his nephews, five of them, including the five-year-old who's mortally injured, are hiding in the safe room. Can you please go get them? So they went into the safe room and they located the five kids, including Atala, the five-year-old, who had a hole in him. The medic right away started to treat the child. And then he turned to the commander, Kalfon, and said, listen, if they stay here another 15 minutes, this kid's going to die. Kalfon, the commander, said he feared the family's evacuation. He says, I'm in a crazy dilemma. What do I do? Do I allocate some of the men to clear off this family with a child? Do I keep them in the safe room, risking Atala's life? Do I fight with only half my men? So what we did is we started looking outside, he said, and we saw that there were the terrorists' motorcycles were thrown on the ground, which means they're roaming around. And then I decided I am going to save this kid if, if I can. I split the force up. I had part of them evacuate the kid, and the rest of us stayed put and continued looking for terrorists and conducting fire with them. Part of my team, the one that evacuated Atala, the five-year-old, were able to get him into an ambulance and then come back and join me to continue the firefight. The medic looked at me and said, there's no chance, he's not going to survive this. I told myself, Kalfon said, well, I did what we could, even at the risk of my man's life. We tried to save the kid. After a few days of fighting, the special units with Kalfon being the commander of it, were able to have a day of taking a break. Kalfon immediately went and looked for the kid's family. Once they located the family, he asked them, what's up with Atala? What happened with him? The uncle who then met him said, you're not going to believe this. He just opened up his eyes. He's going to be fine. The uncle also told Kalfon 
that Atala is hospitalized in the intensive care unit in the Soroka Hospital in Beersheba in the Negev. And then he said, hey, if you have any time, go visit him. Now at the end of the week, Kalfun and his soldiers, they showed up at the hospital. They saw Atala. They gave him some stuffed animals. The kid was smiling. He kissed the policeman. The kid Atala kissed the policeman. And then he said, when I grow up, I'm going to be a policeman. The last story I want to tell you for now is the story of a father and a daughter. Alec the father and Ruth the daughter. Their last name is Peretz. Um, Alec was 58 years old and Ruth was 17. Ruth had cerebral palsy and was confined to a wheelchair. Alec, her father, took her to every possible party in Israel and even around the world, making sure she could dance in a wheelchair and let loose. People who knew them told us how much they loved spending quality time together, and mostly they loved listening to music and dancing. They too went to the music festival, because that's what Ruth loved the most. For days, their fate was unknown. Were they kidnapped to Gaza? How will Ruth survive? How frightened was she by the Hamas butchers? One of the producers uh, in the music festival, named Avi Nisim, uh, he knew Arik and Ruth because Arik and Ruth would show up to a lot of the music that they produced. And he says that Arik is the hero of Israel, the most wonderful father in the world. He says he dedicated his life with total devotion to his beloved daughter, Ruth. Ruth proved to everyone that life can be celebrated even with a total disability. They did not give up on the party, recalls this man, Avi. He says... Ruth would go around in circles around herself with a wheelchair and devoted herself to the music. I would watch her from the sidelines with astonishment and excitement. Twelve days later, their bodies were found and identified. The Hamas butchers didn't even consider sparing Ruth. What makes someone, anyone, murder in cold blood a young teenage girl while she's sitting in her wheelchair and then kills her father as well? Who does that? So this is where I want to kind of explain something that has to do with Hamas slash ISIS slash Al-Qaeda slash Nazi ideology. Muslim fundamentalism, and that again is the Muslim Brotherhood, which the Hamas, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, who are Sunni Muslims belong to, they believe that their worst enemy is Western civilization. Western civilization, they say, has corrupted this world and is horrific, must be taken over and put to death. What do they mean by that? Well, again, a music festival, very much Western civilization. The reason they say this is because they're, in their mind, Western civilization has one main value. Again, in their mind, one main value. And what might, may that value be? Think about it. To them, it's very clear. It's called money. That's all the Westerners care about. Whether it's United States, Western Europe, or Israel, which happens to be a Western nation in the midst of the Arab world. That's all they care about is money. Muslim Brotherhood fundamentalism describes Western civilization as a big ball, which is totally rotten on the inside, with a very thin facade that's covering all the rot. And what they say is, as soon as you break through that crust, that thin facade, the entire ball will implode. How does one do that? Well, you kill as many as you can. You maim them. You cut off their heads, just like ISIS did, 
and Hamas did it even worse than ISIS in this case. You advertise it all over social media so if everyone could see it. You scare that way, the Israelis in this case, the Israeli society. You scare them so much that no one is going to want to invest any more money in Israel. I mean, what tourists are coming to Israel? As a matter of fact, as I told you, I'm in the tour business. I have zero work. Everything's been canceled. No wonder. It probably won't be coming back for several months now. No one's going to come to Israel. Who wants to invest in a country or in a society that has a war, right? And when that happens, they figure, the economy starts shutting down. And as the economy shuts down, people will start to leave. They'll migrate. Why? Because all they care about is money. Of course, that's in their own mindset. They have no clue who and what we're really about. Nor do they understand Israeli resilience and our survivability. They don't grasp how and why we celebrate life. Because to them, they celebrate death. The same twisted ideology of the Hamas slash Al-Qaeda slash ISIS slash Nazi ideology has joined forces with another Muslim group called the Shiites. Now remember, I said that the Muslim Brotherhood is all Sunni. They're not Shiites. The Shiites have their own ideology and they've come together. But understand, anyone has researched the Muslim history knows that the Sunnis and the Shiites have been fighting each other for well over 1,300 years. They don't consider each other even Muslim in many cases, and they've been fighting each other. However, they did come together with this twisted ideology that the West is responsible for all the horrors in the world, and hence, we shall take over the West, put it down, take over all the lands, and make it one large Muslim caliphate. This is not just Israel's war. This is a war between radicalism and the West. It is not by chance that the German Chancellor and the British Prime Minister and, of course, President Biden came directly to Israel and sided with Israel because it wasn't about a territorial fight. It really is a clash between Muslim fundamentalist values and Western values. So now I want to go back and tell you what most Israelis are concerned about as we speak. And the concern is that we, the Israelis, the Israeli Defense Forces, are fighting on four different fronts. Not to say we're not going to win. We are. But it's going to be, it's a concern and it'll cost us a price. Once again, what are the four fronts? The Gaza, Lebanon, the Hezbollah in Lebanon, the West Bank that is infested with Hamas terrorists, and finally Syria. As I mentioned in the very beginning of this episode, Israel has been conducting fire for the last 16 days with the Hamas in Gaza, mainly our Air Force bombing and clearing the areas of where the Hamas butchers are before the ground invasion goes in and finds them one by one. At the same time, the Hezbollah in Lebanon has been conducting a low attrition warfare with us on the Israeli-Lebanese border. They know that we don't really want to fight at two fronts at the same time. We will if we have to, but they know we don't really want to. We want to finish one front and then go to the next. And hence, what they're doing is, again, conducting a low-intensity warfare with us. What does that mean? They shoot mainly shoulder missiles at us from within Lebanon towards our bases and towards our communities. By the way, it's very close. We're talking a couple hundred yards, right? And we uh, retaliate or we find them ahead of time with our 
pilotless airplanes or drones, with helicopters, and with foot soldiers, and try to take them out. So far, we've been successful in taking out many of these squads that are firing shoulder missiles at us, but we've also lost a couple of soldiers and have had some injuries, and that's in Lebanon. In the West Bank, on the same day that we're conducting fire with Gaza and the same day that the Hezbollah has been shooting shoulder missiles into Lebanon, into Israel from Lebanon, we also took out two suicide bomber cars that were on our way to killing Israelis and the people who sent them which, again, as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, were hiding under a mosque. They're always hiding, either hiding under a mosque or under a hospital or under civilian buildings, and we know why they do that. It didn't help them. Our Secret Service did a wonderful job in locating them and, again, taking them out. The last front is Syria. In Syria, there are two main airports, Aleppo and, and uh, Damascus, which Iranian airplanes, almost like an air train, will land there to supply Hezbollah with weapons to supply their proxies in Syria, and maybe even somehow to smuggle those weapons into the Hamas, although now it would be impossible. And yet, we want to make sure that those weapons don't reach these guys who are going to now try to fight us in the north. And so we blew up the tarmacs, and it'll be very difficult for them. Actually, it's impossible for them to land now in Syria. Having said all of that, there are other fronts, but they're not yet hot fronts. So for instance, the Yemen front, in Yemen, there is a proxy group called the Houthis, which is a proxy group to Iran. They're also Shiites. And they attempted to fire missiles at Israel. Never reached Israel. As a matter of fact, as they shot them from the, Yemen, uh, from the coastline of Yemen, American interceptors, that is, um, uh, missiles that intercepted them, blew them out of the sky, and they never even made it towards the Red Sea. We also have another front, another potential front, that is, um, in Iraq, with the proxies that the Iranians have, and in Iraq, those same proxies have been firing at American bases. Look, I'm going to be very blunt, and this is very much the Israeli sense now. If we, Israel, do not destroy the Hamas, destroy the capability of firing missiles at us or conducting any kind of warfare with us, if we do not take out their leadership, and their fighters, and all those responsible for the massacre, kill them one by one. If we do not do that, there's no survival in the Middle East. Everyone's watching us. Iran, the Hezbollah, the Syrians, the Saudis, the Egyptians, the Jordanians, the Iraqis, the Moroccans, and I can go on. Everyone's watching us. It is a total consensus in Israel that we must obliterate the Hamas. Now, as I do in every episode, I must tell you about the heroes. There are so many heroes that emerged from the battles that were fought on that horrible Saturday, October 7th, and for the next few days. I want to tell you the story of a man, or two men rather yet, which I cannot say their names because they work for the Israeli Secret Service. And usually in Israel, if you're not allowed to say their names, and there's plenty of people that you're not allowed to say their names, we call them by their first letter of their first name. So this is M and B, the two men M and B. Um, B lives in Shterot, which is a small town right outside the Gaza Strip in Israel. And at 7 a.m., he realized that something big was going on. The Hamas butchers had descended on a police station in Shterot and had taken it over, killing uh, most of the policemen in that station. B escorted his wife and children to their safe room in their apartment. And then B said that his wife held him tight, not letting them go. 
he was, she was holding him since she knew he was going out there to fight. His two girls were in the safe room crying. B told us that he pulled his, he pulled his arm away from, from his wife and said, My love, I must go and fight. There's no choice. She looked at him, understanding, and retreated into the safe room with her girls. B took his handgun, two magazines, two extra magazines, and ran outside. Now, when B ran outside, he describes total carnage. There's fires everywhere. Cars are turned over. Bullet holes in the buildings. And there are dead bodies all over the street. The butchers fired shoulder missiles at the police station and broke in. And he said that he saw the Hamas butcher's truck and ran to it. He was expecting to find someone in it, trying to conduct fire with him. He then looked inside and saw a small radio, a small Hamas radio communication, which is what kids call a walkie-talkie, right? And B then said that he understood that he's got a game change in his hands. He can listen to what they're saying, spot where they are, and conduct the battles with them. He then contacts M, which works with him, who's a Secret Service operative. M knew Arabic so he could translate everything that's being said. From the communication, they understood where the Hamas butchers were in position, how many they were, and other sensitive information. B tells us that he fought with them for three long hours, and then the special police forces showed up. That's our SWAT teams. Um, since they had their communication, they were able, to, again, to plan their assault on them and pick them off. They talked among each other all the time, he said. In other words, the Hamas operative talked among each other, and they could hear what they're saying. Slowly but surely, less and less of them spoke because we were taking them out. We were hitting them and taking them out. We were killing them. We were able to evacuate the policemen that were stuck on the roof of the police station, right? Evacuate them, and once they realized no one else, no other Israelis were alive in the station, only the terrorists, they basically toppled the entire building on top of them, killing them right into the rubble. And that's one story. A second story is a father and a daughter, two police officers. His name was Itzik Bazuka and Liel, his daughter. They're from a community called Meitar. Meitar is a community not far from Beersheba. When they heard what was going on, they immediately jumped into their truck and they drove towards the battle. Liel was actually driving, the daughter, and she was driving very fast. Now her, da- her father, Itzik, who's a seasoned police officer, a senior police officer in the, pol- in the Israeli police force, calmed her down, said, no worries, we'll be fine. But he was sweating, she said, Liel said, and she cleaned off his sweat. She, Liel, the daughter, said that they saw many bodies on the side of the road, always bodies and bodies and bodies. She also said that she saw bodies sticking out of cars. She said that her father was an unbelievable fighter. She's not the only one that says it. The entire Israeli police force knew who he was and said he was an amazing fighter. Although his name is Itzik, his last name is Bazooka, and they actually called him by his last name. Now, at one point, father and son, Itzik Bazooka and Liel, his daughter, uh, encounter uh, the Hamas butchers. They conduct fire with them. They killed several of them. They took up positions and continued the firefight. Another police officer that was in the area named Aviel Biton, um, he said they were totally surrounded. There were five of them. They were totally surrounded and they were about to die. He had no doubt in his mind. There was no way he was going to survive this. They were almost out of ammunition 
and the Hamas fighters, the Hamas butchers, were closing in. He says we were surrounded, that had huge firepower advantage over us, we were basically done. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he sees two police officers, a man and a woman. Of course, that was Itzik Bazooka and his, and his daughter, Liel. Um, they conducted fire with the Hamas, killing many of them and rescuing the five policemen. Um, Aviel Biton told the story as he was weeping. Egal Sinker was interviewed while he was in the hospital. Again, a police officer, one of the five men that the bazooka father and son, father and daughter, excuse me, um, were saved them. And he quietly weeping told the story and he says, Bazooka showed up as his daughter. They saved me. I was seconds away from death. Itzik Bazooka gathered some of the policemen afterwards and just decided he was going in to continue the firefight with other terrorists. He looked at his daughter and says, you're not joining me. She protested and said, I'm coming. I'm coming with you. And her father, Itzik, said, I said, no, you're not. You're staying here. And she obeyed. Liel continued and told us that he knew where he was going and he knew what was about to unfold. She gave him a kiss. She said and begged, please stay safe. And that was the last thing that she said to him. Itzik and his small force arrived at Kibbutz Re'im, where the majority of the firefight was. Their vehicle was hit by an RPG shoulder missile. Itzik Bazooka was killed right away. Liel heard over the radio people calling out, the Israeli police calling out, saying, who was taking command? And then she heard a voice, and it was not her father's voice, and she knew he was no longer alive. She says that she was still determined to fight. Her brain was not computing yet. She fought for hours. She fought off the Hamas. And at one point, as she was towards the end of the battle with these terrorists, her phone rang. Her mother was on the line, and she told her the tragic news. Her father was indeed dead. Liel said that her father saved her life. He knew that if they were both killed, her mother would not be able to continue living. He, she says he was the stronger person, strongest person in the world. And she says it took an RPG missile to kill him. If he was in a firefight, a regular firefight, he would never would have lost. He would have won, no doubt about it. And I want to tell you one last story about a father and a son, heroes. Um, you know, as I interview and research these stories, I can't help but weep. Um, father's name is Moti, and his son is Amit. Um, their last name is Ezra. Um, Moti's daughter, which is Amit's sister, um, was at the music festival. Her name is Nitan. At one point, she wrote him a text message, and the text message basically said, help. They got into their truck and drove 96 miles to get to the music festival. They lied to the Israeli forces, the ones that were barricading up the area, saying they were part of the special units. When they got closer to the music festival to save the daughter, Nitan, the sister, Nitan, Moti turns to Sanamit and says, you're going no further. You're staying here. Moti says, there's no way I want my son to be killed. I'm not, gonna, I'm not willing to bury my son. If anything, my son buries me. But then Amit looked at him and said, if you think I'm, I'm, I'm staying here, you got another thing coming. There's no way in the world I'm getting out of this vehicle. I am with you. No chance I'm getting out. 
Well, that was convincing and Moti decided to go on with Amit. Nitzan hid in a small concrete structure with many others. The Hamas butchers came into the structure, no one there with an arm, most of them were girls, and just shot and threw grenades in, and most of the people in that small structure were killed. Nitzan and a couple of her friends were under the bodies, and the bodies actually protected them from the fire and from the grenades. Now, Amit told us that his sister, Nitzan, was sending texts the entire time, and she said, they came in to verify that we were dead. Now they're throwing grenades in. The butchers throw in eight grenades in total. Nitzan said that her father Moti, her brother Amit, texted them and said, Keep calm, put blood on your face, pretend you're dead, don't move, and don't say anything. As they got closer to the structure where Nitzan was hiding, all of a sudden Moti looks over and sees 20 young people jump out of the bushes pleading for help. There were the people who were also at the music festival and were begging to be saved. Moti says, I got a dilemma. What do I do? I want to go get my daughter. But there's 20 people here. He turns to his son Amit and says, tell him to get in the truck. All 20 of them piled into the truck and they continued. As they got closer to the structure, they spotted a small unit of Israeli soldiers that were conducting fire with the terrorists. The soldiers covered them. They gave them cover as Moti and Amit ran towards the structure. They found it and ran towards the structure. Amit went in first. And as soon as he went in, he went right back out. He couldn't take it. He said there was a carpet of dead bodies on the ground. And then Moti went in and he apologized profusely for having stepped on the dead body. He then called out, Nitzan, Nitzan, it's me, your father. And that's when the girls knew, oh my God, we are actually going to be saved. Moti and Amit loaded the survivors onto the truck. Nitzan says, my brother was holding me, hugging me. He was yelling to the sky, overjoyed to see me alive. Nitzan continued and said that when they got into the truck, there were multiple other people there, and she had realized her father and brother had saved 20 other people all along the way. They started driving, but it was still extremely dangerous. Moti's phone rang. He answered it, said, I can't talk now, but he forgot to turn it off. And so you can hear the recording of what had happened in the car in the next few seconds. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound it to you. And after I sound it to you, I'll translate. The recording is mostly of Moti and his, and his son Amit. And they say this, girls, 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 be quiet. Don't yell. Only once we're out of here, we'll be able to say that we brought you home. Don't yell. Calm down. You're now with us and it's okay. Give them some water. Girls, don't look. Don't look outside. Don't look outside. That day, Moti and Amit saved 30 people. When they got out of the war zone and into safety, Amit had called his friend and yelled, we brought them, we brought them, my brother, we brought them. Listen. A father and a son, heroes. The microcosm of Israeli society, of Israeli resilience, of Israeli courage. We shall prevail. The Inside Israel podcast can be listened to on all the media sources such as Google, Apple, Amazon, and Spotify. 
We need your support in order to continue this podcast. Please email me at itai, that's I-T-A-I, at insideisrael.fm. Once again, itai, I-T-A-I, at insideisrael.fm, not .com, but rather .fm, and I will send you a link of how to be able to support this podcast.